from Luke. Oh, there we go. Luke chapter 6 and verse 43 through 49. For no tree bears bad fruit, or sorry, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Father, we pray that you would come in the person and power of the Holy Spirit and be our instructor. We pray, King Jesus, that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Lord, fill us with your kindness. Fill us with your goodness. Fill us with your grace. And fill us with your love. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here in Luke 6, Jesus gives um, a very significant teaching on human nature, both as it relates to salvation and to damnation. And Jesus talks in this little parable here about two kinds of trees. There's a good tree and there's a bad tree. Now, it's important to understand that Jesus is not here talking about one species of tree. He's talking about two different species of trees. The good tree, says Jesus, produces good fruit. And in Jesus' example, he speaks about the fruits that were known in his part of the world and in his day and were common. He speaks specifically of figs and grapes. And the tree is good because it produces beneficial things for human beings. Food, in this instance. The bad tree is bad because it produces things that bring no benefit to human beings. Indeed, human beings want to avoid them because they can cause pain and they can cause harm if you get close to them. They're covered with sharp thorns. Uh, I, in my backyard in Sturgis, whoever owned the house before us planted a Russian olive. Have you ever seen a Russian olive? No olives on the Russian olive, but thorns that big at eye level while I'm mowing the grass. Hated that thing. I hacked it down after a few years. I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. And, you know, you don't want to hang out in a thorn bush. I planted blackberry brambles in an area of my yard that I didn't want people to throw their trash in or walk around in, and I did that not because I wanted blackberries, although I do. I did that because the son of a gun had a lot of thorns, and it's going to keep people out, right? Well, it's important here to see that this bad tree is not just like an unhealthy specimen of the good tree. And the good tree is a healthy specimen. It's not like the good tree is a really healthy and vigorous fig tree that makes lots of figs, and the bad tree is a fig tree that doesn't produce very many figs because it needs fertilizer or because insects have damaged it. The bad tree will never become a good tree. 
It'll never become a good tree. If you nurture it and give it what it needs, it won't become a good tree. If you nurture the bad tree and give it what it needs, you'll just get extra sharp thorns, a bumper crop of ouchies. Now notice this also. You infallibly know if a tree is good or bad by simply looking at what it produces. For it always produces a crop consistent with its inner nature. And these trees, says Jesus, are metaphors. They stand for two different kinds of human hearts. Notice once again that there are just two different kinds of human hearts, and they are radically different from one another, as different as fig trees and thorn bushes. There is, says Jesus, a good heart and a bad heart. Now, we live in a historical moment dominated by psychology and by the therapeutic, and psychology teaches us that if a person's life is marked by bad fruit, by evil and destructive words and deeds, then what is required is some sort of therapy that will repair the damage that was probably done by your parents or your social environment or whatever and caused you to start producing bad fruit. And the psychologists teach that with sufficient skillful inputs by a professional, you can go from producing bad fruit to producing good fruit. And Jesus flatly rejects that model of human transformation here. You can't make a thorn bush into a fig tree by fertilizing it and spraying it for bugs. That doesn't address the real issue. The real issue is that tree's inward nature. Now, psychology and counseling can be helpful in certain situations, but it cannot deal with the wrongness of the human heart. It doesn't have that power. And trying to make an evil heart better is like going to the grocery store and buying a bag of apples and then super gluing those apples onto a thorn bush and saying, look at my apple tree. It's amazing, isn't it? Look how fruitful it is. No. If you have a field that's full of thorn bushes and you want apples, the only thing to do is rip the thorn bushes out by the roots and plant apples. And it will take a while. And it will require care and attention. But eventually, you will have apples if you cultivate the good tree. That is the apple tree. And that's because it's in the nature of an apple seedling to grow up and produce apples. That's its inward nature. So if you have an evil heart that's rich in evil treasure, you will produce evil consistently as a natural result. Any apparent good that an evil-hearted person does will simply be apples from the grocery store that have been super glued on. It will be about appearances. The tree will appear to be a good tree if you stand back far enough and squint. But when you get close, you see it's all a fake. If you get close and look long enough, you'll see the thorns. And if you wait long enough, those apples that have been glued and taped on there will rot and they will fall off. Notice also that Jesus says there's a good heart. And Jesus doesn't speak here about a good heart as though it's hypothetical. Jesus takes for granted 
that it's possible for a good person with good treasure in his or her heart who will produce good as a natural outflow of their good inner nature. Now, this may challenge your theology, especially if you're a Calvinist, because we believe in total depravity, and we say there's no such thing as a good person with a good heart, right? Well, if that's what you think, you're misunderstanding the doctrine of total depravity. Jesus believed in the doctrine of total depravity, and he believed that there could be a good person with a good heart producing good in this world from out of the treasure of that good heart. Properly understood, the doctrine of total depravity tells us two things that are completely congruent with this profound little parable. The doctrine of total depravity teaches, first of all, that a thorn bush is a thorn bush in all of its branches. In other words, there aren't any branches on the thorn bush that are different and that will produce apples on the thorn bush, not even one. The thorn bush is 100% thorn bush. And the doctrine of total depravity teaches that our nature is 100% affected by sin. There are no good parts of us that exist before Christ comes into our hearts. So that's the first thing the doctrine of total depravity teaches. The second thing the doctrine of total depravity teaches is that a thorn bush will always be a thorn bush. And it will never produce anything but thorns for its whole life because that is its authentic nature. And any attempts to make it into an apple tree will just be gluing grocery store apples onto the thorn bush. So our evil nature will never develop into a good nature by some sort of growth or development or education. Now, with this in mind, I want us to think about the various formulations of the gospel that we hear today. On the religious left, the liberal mainline, for instance, and increasingly young evangelicals, their version of the gospel is God made you a thorn bush, and we celebrate you in all of your thorniness. God made an incredible variety of thorn bushes, and we will celebrate that thorn bush diversity. You should go and explore all of your thorniness. You should revel in it. And after you've done that, here's a bag of grocery store apples, glue them to your branches, and go out and feed the world. And that's ridiculous, right? The gospel in the evangelical church, though, isn't a lot better. That gospel goes like this. Yeah, we've all got thorns. Yeah, we keep poking the people around us till they bleed sometimes. And we want you to know that God can forgive you for your thorns through the shed blood of Jesus. So you don't need to feel one bit guilty about your thorns. God forgives you. And you get to go to heaven when you die. And until then, just hang out here and listen to the cool music. It's totally optional, but there are bags of apples out in the narthex that you can glue onto your branches if you want, but you don't have to. We mostly just want you to know that this is a place where it's okay to be thorny. We accept you, and you can be your authentic thorny self here. And neither one of those is the gospel that Jesus preached. The gospel that Jesus preached is, come to me, ask of me, and I will rip out the thorn bush by the roots, and I will replant you as a good tree, so that with time and proper care, you can produce good fruit. 
It's Ezekiel chapter 36 where he says, I will take out your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will write my laws on your heart. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and obey my commandments. So let's apply what we've learned from this little parable. First of all, salvation. What is it exactly? Well, salvation is a wonderful and a rich word in the Bible. Salvation at its most basic simply means deliverance. Deliverance. God means to deliver us from everything that is harming us. And everything on the inside of us that is harming others as well. Now, of course, this includes delivering us from hell. And of course, this includes delivering us from the power of the devil. But it also includes delivering you from your pride or your greed or your lust. God means to deliver you from your anger habit because it's killing your marriage and alienating your children. God means to deliver you from your anxiety. Have you ever spent time with someone who has serious habitual anxiety. They are absolutely miserable to be around. Everything is urgent. Everything is an emergency, and they drag you along with them and insist that you be alarmed too so that they don't feel as crazy as they know deep down that they are. God wants to deliver you from that, and he can, and he will if you will enter into a process creatively and cooperatively with him after you've been born anew. God wants to deliver you from using a torrent of words to try and manage how people see you because you are terrified that they might misunderstand you and reject you. Or you are even more terrified that they will actually understand you and see what you're really like and then reject you. God wants to deliver you from pornography because it's based on human degradation and exploitation, and it's ruining the sex life you could have with your spouse. God wants to deliver you from loneliness and isolation and a sense that you're worthless, that you're a defective, that you'll never accomplish anything. He wants to raise you up, and he wants to equip you to bring about the good as a creative agent co-laboring with him. God wants to deliver you from bitterness, God wants to deliver you from despair. God wants to deliver you from an inordinate love of comfort and pleasure and luxury and ease. God wants to deliver you from laziness. God wants to deliver you from overwhelming desire. And God wants to deliver you from overwhelming feelings. He wants to deliver you from everything that harms you and harms others, even the things that you don't realize are harming you and harming others. That is what salvation is in its fullest sense. So that's conclusion number one. Salvation is deliverance. Number two, the goal of salvation is transformation. The goal of salvation is transformation. The goal of salvation isn't heaven when you die. You will get heaven when you die, but that's so that you can have all of eternity to live out your transformation in creative beauty and power. 
He's got, to, he's got to remove you from a finite environment and place you in a better environment so that you'll be able to stretch out your wings and do all that he has planned and purpose for you to do. And you'll need a lot of time and a lot of space to do it in. And that's what heaven and the new heavens and the new earth are for. So, so yeah, you're going to live forever, but you're also going to live a qualitatively different kind of life forever. Number three, transformation is not the same thing as behavior management. Let me say that again. Transformation is not the same thing as behavior management. Johnny Cash uh, had a song. He released it relatively late in his career, I think 92 or 1994, and that song was called The Beast in Me. Are you familiar with it? I wasn't familiar with it. I wonder if you've ever heard it. And in it he sings, the beast in me is caged by frail and fragile bars, restless by day and by night, rants and rages at the stars. God help the beast in me. Most people think that is the Christian life. That the, the, the whole Christian life is trying to make sure that the beast inside of me stays locked in his cage, trying to, to dam up the outflow of a corrupted heart, and often failing. That's behavior management. And of course, it's better to restrain the beast than it is just to let it run wild, but that's not really a solution because the beast has a habit of breaking out of his cage at the worst possible times, Right? And then you got to try and stuff him back in there. Sorry, my beast got out. But what God's after is removing the beast in you. Killing the beast in you. And replacing it with something good at the center of you. That's called regeneration. So salvation is deliverance. The goal of salvation is transformation. Transformation is not the same thing as behavior management. We're going after in transformation the sources of behavior inside of you. And when you deal, when, as Jesus said, he, taught, he used the metaphor of a cup. He said, you, if you just clean the outside of the cup, the outside of the cup looks fine, but it's dirty on the inside. But he says, if you you actually start working on cleaning the inside of the cup, the outside will end up coming clean too. In that little metaphor, the outside of the cup is what you do. The inside of the cup is what's in your heart. And he wants to clean the inside of the cup. He wants to cleanse your heart, not simply from guilt, not from, from he does want to do that, but also from sin's power in your heart. And so that's what God's after. He's after removing the beast, killing the beast and placing something good at the center of you. Number four, and this I think is the most wonderful news, transformation has to be intelligently and cooperatively pursued with God, but, and this is important, there are things that you can do which God will meet with his power and grace which will reliably and repeatedly produce transformation into Christ-likeness in you. There are things 
that you can do that will help you to pursue God and be transformed. And that's a key piece that most Christians are missing today. They don't know how to engage in a reliably uh, a reliable process of transformation. They're not, they're, they're not at all new things that we have to, to learn. They're, they're things that the people of God have, have known about and have used to pursue holiness for millennia. Um, here's a quote from one author writing on uh, the spiritual disciplines. And he says this, here I want to deal with methods for the spiritual life, for the life present in the Christian gospel. We can become like Christ in character and in power and thus realize our highest ideals of well-being and well-doing. That is the heart of the New Testament message. My central claim is that we can become like Christ by doing one thing. By following him in the overall style of life he chose for himself. If we have faith in Christ, we must believe that he knew how to live. We can, through faith and grace, become like Christ by practicing the types of activities he engaged in. By arranging our whole lives around the activities that he himself practiced in order to remain constantly at home in the fellowship of his father. Now, what that means is you don't have to remain as you are. Change is possible. Even the most deeply ingrained patterns of sin can be changed. The things that you've given up on mastering and are just filled with despair about and say, I'm just always going to be this way. I don't know how to be another way. I don't know what to do. I don't have any power. I'm sorry, this is who I am. You ever said that? You ever had somebody say that to you? It doesn't have to be that way. That's not true. Those things cannot be overcome just by trying, right? Because you, you tried and you failed, even trying really hard. But they can be overcome by training. Training is a process where you engage in things that you can do, which will eventually allow you to do things that you cannot now do by direct effort. So let's just say that you wanted to be able to jog a 5K race, but you are currently unable to jog even half a mile. What do you do? Well, you train. You start walking every day, and you get to the point where you can walk the whole 5K. Then maybe you walk for five minutes and jog for five minutes and then start walking again until you complete the 5K. And then you walk for five minutes and jog for seven minutes for a few weeks. Over time, your ability to jog increases and someday you'll be able to jog that whole 5K. Well, spiritual change, spiritual transformation works on the same principle, only with spiritual change, God gets involved because it won't work if he doesn't. He's got, to, he's got to help. We need his help. But God really, really likes to help us to change. He wants us to grow. So you can count on him showing up if you're willing to make those moves. Number five. As of today, 
we are going to start reorienting our church's life and practice around the goal of spiritual transformation. Tabernacle is going to become a school of life, a training center where we teach people how to deal in concrete and effective ways with the things that are hindering them and driving them crazy. And they're keeping them from living lives of great joy, great peace, and great power in the Lord. We're going to get really concrete. We're going to talk about things like, I'm imprisoned by anger. How do I get free from anger? There are things you can do. God will meet that. How do I forgive someone who has hurt me so deeply and damaged me so deeply? How do I forgive them? There's a way to do that. How do I overcome my anxiety and my fear? We'll show you. How do I manage my strong feelings that are constantly pulling me away from God's good way? Well, we can teach you. And, and I want to hear from you. I want, I want to provide a way for you to ask anonymously about the things that are bothering you. And we'll figure out how to address those things forever and together. Now, I want to emphasize something else. You are invited to come along. And it is just that. It's an invitation. We are not going to try and force you. We're not going to try and nag anyone. There will be, some of you grew up and went to Catholic school, right? There will be no angry nun with a ruler smacking your knuckles, right? I thought about appointing Nancy, but I just didn't think she had it in her. So we're just going to do away with the angry nun hitting your knuckles, okay? We want you to do this um, freely. Uh, This part of your journey to work out your salvation with fear and trembling is the part that requires your joyful, free cooperation with God and with his people. And if you really don't want to do that, it's okay. We won't try and make you. But I just want to tell you that we're going to be focused on that goal from now on. And I'm going to start unfolding that goal um, to you here in the coming weeks. Let me, let me just close with this. This is, if I were to say this is a, my short-term goal for this church, this is it. Most Christians have never been in an intimate fellowship where the corrupted condition of the human soul did not, in fact, prevail. That is a fellowship in which they could assume that everyone would do what everybody knew to be right. And many people in our culture have, on the basis of their experiences, simply given up on the church, many of them in the name of God and of righteousness. So so the short-term goal here. This is the school of life. This is where we're training. The short-term goal here is to, for Tabernacle to become the kind of place where everybody does, while they're in this building, while they're with these people, the things that everybody knows to be right. That, that, that everybody is committed to treating other people in the same way that they want to be treated. And that when they fail at that, they recognize it, and rather than withdrawing and inventing some story about how that person deserved it, or, or avoiding and saying, well, they'll never like me again, 
that we go to that person that we've offended and say, I'm sorry. And then the person that has been offended says, I forgive you. Let's be friends. And that that relationship then grows stronger. That people are committed to exercise their jobs within the church and do them as unto the Lord. That Jesus is looking over your shoulder while you're washing the dishes in the kitchen and he wants you to do a good job. That the, 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 the Sunday school lesson that you're planning is planned very carefully and with great zeal and enthusiasm so that when the people have questions, you can answer them. When people have challenges to make, you can respond to them. It, we want the prayer meetings to be full of the prayers of the saints where everybody comes together in agreement and says, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, make it so, Lord, to everything that's prayed. We're going to start here. We're going to try and make this place into a place where everybody does what everybody knows is right to do. Just right here. You can do whatever you want for the rest of the week, right? Just right here. Just start right here. You can be a total horse's patoot, like on Fridays, okay? But here, just when you walk in these doors, shift your mind and say, it's different here. And I'm learning. Because here's what will happen. You'll learn to do that here. And then you'll carry it out with you into the world. And you'll start responding to people. And they'll look at you and go, what's gotten into you? You used to be so angry. You go off with a hair trigger. You're not doing that anymore. What happened? Then you can say, Jesus happened. Jesus came and he taught me. And we engaged in this process together, and he's healing me. He's saving me. Not just from sin and death and hell, but from my anger problem, too. And he can do the same thing for you. Oh, I want some of that. That's what the person said. I, I want some of that. Father, we begin now a, a journey. And it's a journey still as yet um, without all the signposts and markers laid out. It's, it's going to be a little bit of a dynamic journey. I pray, Father, that you would incline the hearts of the people to lean into the journey. To say, how, how, I want to know how to forgive. I'm, I'm tired of unforgiveness. I'm tired of bitterness. It's a root. It's grown, it's grown deep. How do I forgive? And that we would learn. And that we would be able to do so. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.